Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Today, we are again joined by Ulysses S. Grant, or Dr. Kurt Fields. As previously mentioned, Dr. Kurt Fields is the world's leading Ulysses S. Grant living historian. Today, he joins us for part two of the show as we talk about Grant's presidency and his 200th birthday. I hope you enjoy the show. So you have these high casualties. You have uh, criticisms coming from some northern press uh, and definitely southern press. Um, you know, the war ends up winning. You accept Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox on April 9th, just uh, a few days ago, as we're recording this on April 18th. Um, the war ends. Five days after the war, President Lincoln is assassinated tragically. Uh, you and your wife, Julia, are invited to attend. So you come out of this war with these heavy casualties in the Overland campaign, and then a close associate, and I would assume friend of yours, is assassinated. And I've read that you felt personally responsible for that, um, like you could have done something about it. So what sort of impact, is, is that true? And if so, what sort of impact do these heavy casualties and then Lincoln's death have on uh, General Grant and on your uh, mental health and aspect that I would imagine would have to take a toll? It took a toll. The weight of command is heavy. Because I know that when I give an order, if we're on campaign and I issue orders that, uh, that there is the probability that men are going to be wounded or killed, but we are fighting a war and we must prevail. The toll, though, uh, while heavy, was not unbearable. I, I do have a great deal of mental resilience and it it was born. The weight was born. The uh, issue with President Lincoln, he was uh, a good friend. We, we met uh, often, but in the overall scheme of, of the war, we spent very little time together. In fact, it, it may surprise you to know that there is not a single photograph of myself with President Lincoln. There, there are many pictures and drawings and paintings, but there was never a photograph taken of President Lincoln and myself together. Uh, but when the president was assassinated, I, I deeply regretted not having been with him that night. Uh, Mrs. Lincoln has her difficulties, and uh, my wife, Julia, and she did not get along. So when the president invited us to attend uh, to play our American cousin at Ford's theater, uh, the day of the morning of uh, April 14th, uh, I, I said, I need to check with my, my wife before I commit to that. And I went home and asked Julia and Julia said, no, we're going to see, do you tell the president we're going to see our children in Burlington, New Jersey. Uh, we had not seen the children in, in a, a while. And uh, we both wanted very much to go see them. And, I and, and she also said, I will not spend another minute with that woman. So I went back to the president and uh, expressed my regrets and said we wouldn't be able to attend. On the train to New Jersey, a couple of things happened. Julia told me that the morning or during the day on the 14th, she and friends were having dinner at a restaurant there in Washington. And there was a fella, dark complected with a dark mustache, sitting a couple of tables away from them, looking at them, very into staring at them. And they all noted it and, and took note of it and talked among, you know, whispered among themselves. Uh, and then uh, she, later on, they were riding in their uh, carriage, she and myself, and a fellow rode up <clears throat> on horseback quickly 
beside us and stuck his head all the way in our carriage and looked us both over. Now, this startled me because uh, I, I had to lean back. The fellow's head came right in front of my face. And when he pulled back out and put the spurs to his horse, Julia excitedly said, that's him. That's the guy that was in the restaurant. That's the fellow I was telling you about. And I, I didn't recognize him, but he, he was dark mustache and a uh, very handsome man, uh, as John Wilkes Booth was. Well, when we went to the theater that night, uh, we went to the train. The Lincolns went to the theater. And on the train to uh, New Jersey, while we were there, Julia and I were in our car, private car, alone. And somebody tried to get in the door at the 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 left end of the your left your to your left somebody tried that door really hard and uh there was a guard at the other end so uh i i got up and went and, and i looked out the door and there was nobody there uh but somebody did try to get in the locked door that we i told the officer at the outside the other door and they locked that one then and made sure that the other one at the other end of the car stayed locked. When we uh, got into the New, onto the New Jersey shore, uh, we crossed by a ferry from uh, Washington to the New Jersey side. The train stopped at a restaurant. We went in to eat. And uh, this is several hours after we left D.C. And, uh, and, and some people call it D.C. It's, it's, we frequently call it Washington City. But uh, its its official name is Washington D.C. District of Columbia, and we also refer to it in that matter. So, uh, some a messenger came up to me and and tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Need to speak with you." And I was given the news that the president had been shot and was not expected to live. I went back, sat down with Julia, and she, of course, asked, "What was that about?" If you can tell me. Many times I couldn't. And I told her, I'm going to tell you something that you must remember. Say nothing. Don't make any sound. Don't look around. Don't jerk your hand to your face in shock. And she said, all right, but what? And I said, the president has been shot and is not expected to live. And I had been called back to Washington immediately. I told them we were almost to Burlington where we were going. I telegraphed back and said, I'm going on to Burlington and see that Julia is securely with the children. And then I'm coming back. There was no need to send them on and then be returned. I made sure my wife and children were secure and which was only an hour or so away. Then I entrained again and went back to Washington City. Now, I, I will tell you that uh, there were uncounted guards around my car and in my car with me on the way back to Washington. I do regret uh, that I was not with the president that night. If I had been with the president, I, I, I firmly believe he would not have been assassinated. You see, with the president, he had, uh, usually he had a Marshall Ward Hill layman with him. Well, Ward was out of town on federal business. He had another bodyguard that night, a good man. And when they got to the, uh, the playhouse, Ford's Theater was in the same building with the saloon. So you had a saloon on, in, in the building and the theater on the other side. President Lincoln told the bodyguard, go over there and, and, and amuse yourself as you wish. Just watch your time. And about when the play's over, you can hear it in the saloon. When the play's over, come back and meet me. So there was no one at the president's door. As you go up the staircase and the door to the box. Well, if I had been with the president, there would have been one to two guards at that door 
probably one at the foot of the steps, another guard or so in the alley where you come into the stage door out of the alley. Uh, and they would have been men who were dedicated to me in your to killing and not about to let anybody get near General Grant. John Wilkes Booth would not have been able to get up those steps and in the presidential box. If, if I had been with him, my troopers would have protected us. Uh, moreover, he was carrying a one-shot Derringer. So he was, his mission was to shoot the president. He didn't have another bullet to shoot me. And I'll assure you, by the time he fired that weapon, I would have been all over him. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was, there was another officer in the box, a major whose name escapes me. So, so the Booth had a dagger and a, a one-shot pistol. And it is my firm belief that had I been with President Lincoln, he would not have been assassinated. And I have regretted that every day since then. Well, it seems like uh, your life until that point has definitely prepared you to handle these kind of things. Um, unfortunate turn of events there, but so that happens. Unfortunately, um, you know, you focus on reconstruction, working with President Andrew Johnson, uh, and eventually you become elected president for two terms. Uh, that presidency, depending on how you look on it, it look at it has some ups and downs. Uh, but what what are you most proud of during your time in office? I am most proud of. Uh, establishing rights for the newly freed uh, slaves, all the black people, the four, some four millions of blacks who were released and now free, and the trials and tribulations that they suffered, what I did in my efforts to make them full-fledged citizens and enjoy the protection and the rights of full citizenry. Uh, I'm very proud of what I did to fight the Klan. I killed the Klan. In 1874, I broke the Klan. Uh, I sent troops into South Carolina, declared martial law in eight different counties. Uh, I had uh, hundreds of civil rights trials conducted, resulting in hundreds of convictions of men going to jail, even some uh, death sentences. The, uh, I'm also proud of what I was doing to try to uh, make Reconstruction less of a horror than what it was. And I was, I was caught between a radical Republican Congress that uh, both in President Johnson's administration and in my two terms, they wanted to, the, the battle cry was to make treason odious and that the heel of the victor should be firmly on the neck of the loser. Well, my feeling about that was I was uh, of the, the mindset of President Lincoln, let him up easy. But putting the heel of the victor on the neck of the loser is not guaranteed or designed to foster and promulgate healing. We had a country that we had to bring back together. And I didn't want to make treason odious. I wanted to bring the South back into the Union and rebuild it and get it economically started again and ameliorate the horrors of the war and to encourage the healing and bringing the countries back together. The Republican Congress felt I wasn't hard enough on them and the Reconstruction Southerners seeking what they called redemption. They wanted to redeem control of their state governments and uh, uh, actually take the South back to what it was before the war. And they felt that, that I was too hard. So the, the, my Congress felt I wasn't hard enough. The Southern leadership felt I was too hard. I created the Justice Department. Uh, there wasn't a Justice Department before my presidency. Until I was president, the attorney general served as the president's personal counsel, personal lawyer. And uh, I changed that. Bless you. So I changed that. 
I had the Justice Department created for the purpose of pursuing civil rights violations, uh, arrests, trials, and convictions. And I made with that the Attorney General the chief legal officer of the country. The position of Solicitor General was created, and that position became the President's personal attorney and legal advisor. I was proud of, of creating the Justice Department and pursuing those wrongs because you see in the if there's not a justice department without a justice department and the attorney general being the chief legal officer uh, and the civil rights acts the 13th 14th and 15th amendment which said you can't keep people from voting if you burn somebody's barn in south carolina or louisiana uh, to keep them from voting, then that's that's a local problem. That's you. I, I can't invoke federal troops or the weight of the federal government to address a burning barn or a burning house. But with the 15th Amendment that says you can't do that and the creation of the Justice Department, then I can do something. Now, see, it's a federal crime now if you keep somebody if you did from voting, burn their barn, burn their home, physically attack or threaten them. So with the 15th Amendment passed and the creation under my administration and leadership of creating the Justice Department, making the attorney general the position he holds into the state, I was able to uh, send troops into the South. There were three acts that were passed called the Klan Acts in Congress. Uh, in succession of about a year, a year and a half apart, that gave me increasing authority to send and use troops to quell disturbances, quell riots, and to assure that the newly enfranchised black voter could vote without fear for his life or, or his property. And I'm proud of that. I'm also proud of the of vetoing the inflation bill in 1874. Congress wanted to print greenbacks. Now, people have always heard the term greenbacks, but to tell you what they mean, greenbacks were uh, paper money, green in color, greenbacks, and they weren't backed by gold or silver, what we call in the government specie. Greenbacks were not covered by specie. They, they were just paper money. And that's like running money off on a, a, a printing press and cutting it up and taking it out and spending it. It's worthless. But the government guaranteed it. The government said, we'll make this good, although it's not backed by gold or silver. We needed that, President Lincoln felt, during the war. Our federal government nearly went bankrupt on two or three occasions during the war. In fact, I was told in 1865 that we may not be able to meet the payroll this month. Told that a couple of times. Uh, be prepared, I was advised. The government's about to go broke and may default. We can't or may not be able to meet the payroll. That's how perilously close we came to the brink of financial disaster. That war nearly broke the United States government. So they printed greenbacks to put more paper money into the, the hands of the people to ease the financial crunch. When I became president, it was my plan to take all of that, all of those greenbacks out of circulation because worthless greenbacks were bringing down the value of the other paper money that was backed by gold, silver, specie. And I was pulling them down. Your students may, may be aware that as money wears out, it's brought back and banks flag it. They catch it at the banks and send it back to the Federal Reserve where they are burned. They're destroyed in flames. Well, I was when this, these bills came back in, my secretary of the Treasury, George Batwell, had directed that those dead greenbacks, the worn out ones, we, would, we were taking them and burning them and we weren't issuing any more. So we were doing what's called drawing down 
the greenbacks, which would make all the other paper money much stronger. Congress wanted to pass another bill that would start printing greenbacks again. We were having some financial difficulties in the country as it rules, trying to recover from the war. And uh, both sides, Democrats and Republicans, supported it. I did not because I felt we can't have paper money in circulation that everybody knows is worthless. It's going to create inflation and make everything cost more and people will actually have less money. They might have a a fistful of greenbacks and they're not worth anything or very little. So to everybody's surprise, I vetoed it. I stopped it. And there were enough sound thinking congressmen and senators that they couldn't override my veto. So I vetoed the inflationary bill and saved our country, I think, from financial disaster. Now, it was painful in the short run. A lot of farmers, particularly out west, went broke because the money supply tightened up. We had for a couple of years, we went into a recession in 1877 that was very painful. But it was the better thing to do in the long run. And even unto this day, our United States monetary system is based on what I developed or had developed in my administration in the vetoing of the inflationary bill. Nobody knows about that. That's what I'm most proud of. Something else I'm proud of, the settling of the Alabama claims. Now, for those who may not be aware of the Alabama claims, the Alabama was a Confederate warship that was built by British shipmakers, actually Laird and Sons in Liverpool. And the Alabama, the Shenandoah, the Florida, and some three or four other state class ships were Confederate privateers. And they destroyed millions of millions of dollars worth of property. In fact, the Confederate privateers were the cause for us going to kerosene lamps. They were what ultimately made John D. Rockefeller a millionaire because the Confederate raiders were uh, catching the whaling ships and and, uh, burning them, sinking them. Well, until that time, Whale oil was the oil that people all across America burned in their lamps because Confederate privateers were sinking the whaling ships. No one could get whale oil. John D. Rockefeller realized, and other oil makers, his name is most prominent, they were letting kerosene run off the side of the, of the oil well as a byproduct of making gasoline. It was a worthless byproduct. Somebody suggested, you know, we can sell this kerosene, as they called it, and they can burn it in lamps. So Mr. Rockefeller and other oil well men began to sell kerosene to burn in lamps. So kerosene lamps came about because of the Confederate privateers, Alabama, Florida, Shenandoah, uh, sinking all the whaling ships. And a new industry was born in America. And I I think it'll probably become quite some industry, the oil industry. I see great things for it in the future. But that's an unintended result of the war. Now, the Alabama claims were that ship owners in uh, particularly New England, who owned all of these ships, uh, they were just furious with England because England had English shipbuilders had built all of these Confederate privateers. I think some seven of them altogether and uh, responsible for driving some of them out of business. So they filed claims with the United States government after the war against Great Britain. And for ease of recognition, they were called the Alabama claims because the Alabama was the most famous of all of them. I had that settled. There were a lot of people who wanted to go to war with England. And I I quashed that. 
uh, and we settled the Alabama claims in my administration for 15 millions of dollars, which uh, satisfied a number of people in America, uh, satisfied the Brits because they thought that's a lot of money, but it, it could have been more. But there's another little item in the Alabama claims that, that few people know about that I want you and your folks to know about. If you look at a map of Nova Scotia, the New England coastline up there around Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, look at the map and you'll see a blue line that runs down off the coast of northeastern United States, southeastern Canada. There's a blue border line that runs right through those fishing lines. That was part of the Alabama claims because they're some of the richest fishing land or uh, ocean in the world, fishing grounds. And Canadian and American fishermen were vying for fishing in there. And they were they had actually come to shooting at each other. There was they were. Uh, there was a hot fight going over there. And what I was able to bring about through my ministers that were in England negotiating this, we established a border for the fishing rights running off the coast of Canada and Northeastern America that is in effect to this day. It's on the maps if you look at it. And we stopped a potential war. And certainly we stopped bloodshed. And that's part of the Alabama claims of fishing rights off of southeastern Canada, northeastern America. Look at your maps. That blue line runs down through there. And that's part of what I was able to bring about in the Alabama claims. I'm very proud of that. So I wish I could have done more. Uh, I tried to do more with uh, the civil rights uh, development and protection for newly enslaved or newly enfranchised former slaves. Uh, I tried to get uh, more legislation that would be beneficial to the South to rebuild its economy, bring it back to where it was prior to the war. Uh, I was able to do some, not all. I was able to get uh, many of the states out of military occupation and back into the Union. I did all I could, uh, but I, I could I did not do as much as I wanted to. Well, you mentioned early on, uh, we talked about your father and your mother, abolitionists. You said you were never an abolitionist, but as you went through the South and uh, the war, that you realized that slavery needed to be done away with, and you just mentioned that you wish you had done more. So do you think that those seeds Jesse and Hannah planted way back when we uh, started with you in Georgetown, Ohio, had something to do with that? Oh, absolutely. It was, uh, see, you have heredity and environment. Everybody has that within themselves. My heredity was to be serious. Uh, I was gifted at birth with an intelligence. I had a good, I was blessed with a good intellect, good mind. And uh, see, there's a difference between intelligence and intellect. Intellect is what you're born with. That's your gray matter that an infant newborn comes into the world with, and intellect. Intelligence is that intellect educated and trained. See, that's the difference between intellect, intelligence. Uh, Think how many people before writing was developed thousands of years ago were uh, intelligent men who were scientists and, and women, scientists who could have been scientists, who could have been engineers, who could have been medical people, but they didn't have the wherewithal to develop that intellect that they had. They had raw intellect, gray matter, brain cells. We came uh, in the future as it marched on, we developed writing and science. So by the time I came along and your students come along, they come into the world with an intellect. They, they, that's what they're born with. Now, what they do to develop it 
the training they get in your classes and other classes that they go to, the books they read, the, the training programs they get involved in. See, that's their intelligence. Intellect is raw. Intelligence is trained and developed intellect. Mm-hmm. I was blessed with an intellect, a, a good intellect. Uh, and I was further blessed. And see, that's heredity. I was further blessed with a good environment where my father, my mother essentially taught my father how to read. He went to school for a total of, I think, six months. And my mother, Hannah, was well-educated, which was really unusual for a girl of the 18 teens. Uh, But mother taught father who was hungry to learn. He wanted to be a good businessman. He had an, an eager mind. So mother, when they married in their early mid-20s, my mother taught my father essentially how to read. And he grasped it with a will. He had the largest library in Brown County where I grew up. He had 23 books in his library, an astonishing number of books. So my parents learned to read and they exposed me to reading. And I thoroughly enjoyed reading. See, that. I had the intellect, that's heredity. I had the environment that gave me the opportunity to be around parents who read themselves, who respected education, who encouraged education and taught myself and all five of my brothers and sisters. I got two brothers and three sisters. There are six little grants. We all became heavy readers and all developed that intellect into an intelligence. So my innate uh, blessings and capabilities were developed in an environment. My heredity was developed in a teaching environment that encouraged all along as a fundamental principle, a strong work ethic. Mm -hmm. If you're given something to do, do it and do it as well as you can. And don't stop until you're finished with it. Uh, simple, simply said, easily said, but difficult in application. Mm-hmm. So I, my Georgetown upbringing from my, my parents to my environment, my heredity was good. My environment was good and came together to make me the person that I became when I got involved in the military and rose in leadership. And when I was faced with difficult decisions, well, let's go back. Not so much a difficult decision as a commanding officer. What about Dave and me and moving Dr. Buckner's Rock? I was 14 years old, but I went down there. I knew there was some money involved in it, so I had a financial incentive. And I was a small, I was a small lad. When I started West Point, I had just turned 17 years of age. I was 5'1". I was 5 feet, 1 inch tall. And I weighed 117 pounds. I was not an impressive figure. But back it up three years when I was 14. And I went down that road that is still there today, heavily used daily. I walked down that then dirt road. I looked at that rock and that mud. And I measured it. And I thought about it and run a stick down beside it and tried to find out how deep. I figured out it was about a foot, 14 inches, I believe, deep. And I sat there with my head in my hands, my face in my hands. I looked at that rock and looked at it and looked at it some more and figured out I can do the run chains. I can dig trenches and see back the wagon. Back of the trench needs to be deeper than the front of the trench so the wagon wheels go down further. Angles and see, listen to what I'm saying. Distance, angles, weight of the rock, run the chain, hook it up under here. Wagon goes up, rock goes up, don't want it dragging on the road. Got to put the chain length, had to measure rock. All of these simple mathematical equations, but it's engineering at its best, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, at, it's applied engineering. And I was only 14. So which tells you two things. I early on, well, I was blessed with an, an intellect that was already being developed into some intelligence. 
And I had a work ethic that I knew I could do this and was determined to do it. And I, I figured it out. And it's overall, it's applied engineering at its simplest. And yet, I dare say, Andy, maybe it's best because I accomplished something of great note for a 14-year-old and the rest of the men in the town, because there were men in the town who said, you can't get that out of there. Nobody can get that rock out of there. Yeah, they could. A single 14-year-old boy was able to get that 2,600-pound rock out of that mud and drop it right at Dr. Buckner's porch for his front step. So that's what Georgetown did for me. The environment that I grew up in, in my home, uh, a, a hatred of slavery, and I, I did not like slavery. When I saw it firsthand, I came to hate it. And, and, and I realized this has got to stop. This is an evil that has to stop. And uh, the, the education that I had that I thought too rudimentary to be successful at West Point, but it was, but combined that rudimentary education with an intellect that was strong to start with. Now, again, that sounds like I'm boasting. That sounds like I'm saying, oh, I was so smart. I wasn't. I had a good mind and it had been developed by good teachers, but I was willing to learn, wanted to learn. And I brought that heredity, that work ethic, that community exposure outside of the home parlor, all of it was positive that came to form that five 117 pound boy that went to West Point, the boy that didn't want to be at West Point, but he went. <laughs> I'm going to have to tell my freshman students, I'm going to say, look, Ulysses moved uh, this one ton rock when he was 14. So you guys can, you're 14, you can do your homework assignments. Because <laughs> they, they struggle with, with a couple questions on homework. So if you can move a rock, they can do their homework assignments. So uh, all of that is, I mean, you, you talk about the rock, you talk about um, the Mexican-American War, Fort Henry, Donaldson, Vicksburg. We could go down the, down the line, uh, Appomattox Courthouse, your presidency, passing these civil rights bills, uh, all incredible things, things to be proud of. Um, but if you had to pick one thing from your life, could we kind of, I mean, there's a lot we can go into, we kind of breeze through it, but... Uh, if you could pick one thing that you're most proud of from all of that, what do you think you would pick? My victory at Vicksburg. Mm. Because, and I, I would ask of you a little leeway to have a civilian thing uh, aspect applied to this. Mm -hmm. I think militarily, uh, and if, if I had to say one thing, as you saw, I, I did not hesitate, Vicksburg. Vicksburg was the signal victory of the war. It was my greatest victory, I think, without a doubt. For the many reasons, Vicksburg opened the Mississippi River from source to mouth. Uh, it, it split the Confederacy in half. All of those states, uh, Texas and Louisiana, Arkansas and, and Oklahoma out further west, it separated them from the western or the eastern part of the United States with the main Confederacy. The Confederacy lost, it's indescribable, the loss they suffered when the Mississippi River uh, was closed. It's like everything west of the Mississippi just fell off into nothingness as far as the Confederacy was concerned. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get food, they couldn't get reinforcements, they couldn't get supplies, it was devastating. Uh, it also opened up trade again for the Midwestern states. So think about Midwestern and the, the states around the Great Lakes, for example, who were all shipped, all the farmers with their produce, all the manufacturers, the, the booming uh, industrial age, they're all making these products and they can't ship them overseas like they've been doing before the war. Now that the river is open, thousands of tons of machinery and goods, produce, food, 
is now going back down the Mississippi to New Orleans and then to South America and to Eastern Europe. Uh, see, there, there's a great economic factor underlying the military factor of the war. I was under great pressure from uh, the president to open the Mississippi to let well, people like a, a specific John Deere in Moline, Illinois. John Deere with that new plow he's got. Uh, he's been shipping before the war. He was shipping those to England and South America, all over the world. When the Confederates closed the Mississippi, Mr. Deere couldn't ship anything anywhere unless he went across country by train and wagon to the East Coast, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and shipped out of there. But the railroads saw an opportunity and raised the rates. So it was extremely expensive for everybody in the Midwest who'd been shipping down the Mississippi to, to rail, road, and wagon across to the eastern seaboard and ship from there. It really raised the cost of goods and products. So the economic basis of what I did in opening Vicksburg is kind of the unseen hand behind the military. It's a shadow behind the military victory. Yes, it was signal for the Union Army to take Vicksburg and defeat them and, and deal such a blow to the Confederacy. But it was a blessing untold to manufacturing and agriculture in the Midwest and portions of New England and out West to be able to funnel goods again down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico and South America and Europe and world markets. So there was your economic pressure there as well as the military success. So I think Vicksburg was my greatest success. My greatest civilian success, I would say marrying Julia Dent. Julia Dent, I'll characterize it like this. Uh, I'm not an other directed person. Now, I, I want that to sink in. I am not an other directed person. I do not need anybody to tell me what to do or how to do a task given me. Now, that's not to say I resent orders. I resent directions. I'm a soldier. I take orders as easily as I give them. Uh, it's to make a statement that what, as I rose in command, I, I demonstrated that I had the intellect, the experience, the intelligence. Remember, int intelligence is intellect developed. Mm -hmm. I had the intelligence to plan, and, and I, was, I had a gift of military capability and command, effective command strategies and demeanor. Uh, I didn't need anybody to tell me how to run an army. And I demonstrated that rising to the ranks of the highest ranking officer in the army. See, I'm not other directed. But Julia, I was not, after I met Julia and fell in love with Julia, which is, I think, after or maybe right up there with Abigail and John Adams, the romance and the love and the relationship that I had with Julia is, I think, of equal status with John and Abigail Adams. Uh, while I was, I didn't need anybody to tell me what to do. After I met and fell in love with Julia Dent, I was never whole unless after that, unless she was with me. I was less than I could be without my Julia. Now, that's outside the military. Once I stepped out of the tent and on the field, that's a different world. Make, make no mistake. I'm not saying I needed Julia. <laughs> I wasn't whole without Julia to lead an army. I think that's demonstrated. I think in my life overall would be a good way to say it. My civilian life, my personal life, I was never whole without Julia. The mm -hmm. soldiers all loved to see Julia in camp. She traveled 10,000 miles to be with me during the war when it was appropriate for wives to be with officers. She was famous among the Army for being so kind, generous, laughing, good humor. She, she buoyed the spirits 
of every soldier around. They love to see her coming. I think maybe more than I did, but Julie uh, <laughs> was a bright, bright spot in every camp and certainly in my own life. So I think a civilian, a civilian application would be my marriage to Julia would be the greatest achievement of my life. And a third would be the veto of the Inflationary Act and stabilizing our currency. It was a, it was a hard thing to do, Andy. Mm-hmm. It, was a hard, it was a hard thing to do. But I knew as much as I wanted to do it, I wanted to sign that bill and ease the economic situation. But I knew that it would be a false sense of comfort that would ultimately, and not long actually, cause a great deal of pain in the economy with the creation of inflation and the ultimate uh, recession that would, that would come as a result of the inflation mm-hmm. and money that's not back. So I did, I took the hard road that was very unpopular. My own party, the Republican Party, castigated me, cursed me, uh, disowned me, so to speak. And the Democrats were equally as cruel. And it, it was, the, the executive residence was a lonely place for a while. Uh, and we did have some recession. And that was painful. But I go back, I'll make something of an analogy. Remember I said, don't make, don't play games with numbers. Mm-hmm with casualties. If a man is hurt on that field, wounded or killed, that's a hundred percent for him. Right. Don't talk to me if this guy's got this many casualties and this guy has less percentage. The man who's shot or hurt on the field, that's a hundred percent for him. The same thing applies to politics. Uh, I know that, that people were hurt in the recession that came because I vetoed that bill and, and did not increase worthless paper money in, the, in circulation for the economy because I knew it may feel great for a while, but it's going to be like walking on air and then you realize there's nothing below you. And what happens then? You fall. Once you lose your faith and, and you realize there's nothing supporting me, down you go. And I didn't want that to happen to the country. So I, I took the hard road and vetoed that bill and suffered for it. But I think in the long run, I'm even, in fact, I'm even more convinced this day that I did the right thing. Kind of like the Overland campaign, you take those casualties up front uh, to end the war faster. So kind of a similar mindset there. Indeed, because more men died in a shorter period of time than had died in any time during the, before my uh, Overland campaign in that shorter period, the death and wounded death toll wounded rates were horrendous, but I still maintain that less men died than would have died if we didn't engage Lee and bring him to surrender because as I said, there were two men dying of disease in the tents for every one man who died as a result of a combat related wound. Yeah. So you take those casualties up front. I mean, it it makes perfect sense. Maybe not to some uh, people who believe in the lost cause, but (laughs) to other people who, who don't like the label you a butcher, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I got to ask, too, since it's coming up, uh, how excited are you for your 200th birthday coming up here? You look pretty good at 200 years old, I got to say. <laughs> well, thank you. I am ecstatic. I feel great. 200 is a good age. And I'll tell you something else. I'm from Ohio. Uh, I know that there's a fellow from Missouri who's famous for having said, well, sir, I am from Missouri and you will have to show me. <laughs> they even call themselves the show me state now. Well, I'd, I'd like to start another expression. I'm from Ohio. 
That's all the that nation. That. I'm from Ohio, so I can get behind that one. <laughs> if, if, if when the fellow says, I'm from Missouri, and you'll have to show me, sir, I would reply, well, I am from Ohio, and that's all that needs to be said, sir. Uh, I feel wonderful about the bicentennial. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. Uh, many, many things are happening across the country to celebrate uh, my bicentennial. My presidency, uh, which was given a, a, a bad reputation, undeserved, has been re-examined, and I stress re-examined, <clears throat> not rewritten. Mm. Big difference, not revised. People are taking long, hard looks now at what I did in my presidency and seeing that I was in actuality a very good president. I had scandals in my second term. See, they didn't start till my second term. One, the major scandal, the Credit Mobilier, which was a railroad buying Congress, is in effect paying off Congress. See, people don't realize that that started under President Lincoln's administration and went through President Johnson's administration and finally surfaced and broke in my administration. And I, President Lincoln wasn't aware of, of that. Uh, I don't think President Johnson was aware of it. I was painfully made aware of it when the scandal broke. And con a number of congressmen were ruined, as they should have been, because they were taking bribes and the railroad grant, land, granted lands and, and sale and so forth. Uh, so the credit mobility was nothing I had anything to do with. I happened to be standing in the door when the wind blew it shut, so to speak, and caught my fingers in the door. Uh, a fault that I had is I love too well and too long. Mm. There are some men in my administration, uh, Orville Babcock, for example, and, and Belknap, George Belknap, uh, interior, uh, that they were men who had been my friends in my darkest days. And I felt and said on many occasions, the man who was my friend in my hours of darkness will be my friend in my hours of sunshine. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I held on to men who had been my friends. The problem was that people like Orville Babcock, who'd been on my staff through the war, uh, made general and then gets involved in my staff as a secretary and so forth. Very trusted man. He fell weak uh, to moneyed interest and the corruption of Washington, D.C. washed over him and he didn't wash it off. He he got involved. He was corrupted. Other men, uh, even my brother-in-law, Abel Corbin, who's married to my sister, Mary, he was involved with Jay Gould and Jim Fisk in the, the gold scandal, Black Friday, September the 29th, back of 1869. That was my own brother-in-law trying to, to, he was bought off with promises of big money because they, Gould and Fisk thought he had a direct line to me, which he did, but I, I early on, since he was an opportunist and married my sister for who she was, my sister instead of what she was <clears throat> a good woman mm. so men that i trusted in the inner circle became corrupted and i was wont to to dismiss them <clears throat> and held on to them longer than i should have uh i was never involved in any scandal but <clears throat> excuse me that that doesn't even need to be said. I was never involved in a scandal, but I was criticized for having a scandal-ridden administration, which is not the case. I had scandals in my second term, not the first. Uh, so the lost cause theory also was coming, uh, coming on strong. Reconstruction was coming on. And as I have said before, I was standing between radical Republicans in Congress and redemption-seeking Southerners who are trying to redeem their state governments and take the South back to pre-war conditions. Mm -hmm. The Congress thought I was not hard enough. The South thought I was too hard. And 
uh, I couldn't I couldn't make anybody happy, but I, I persisted in doing what I thought was best. And I submit that if you go back and review what I actually did in my administration, those two terms, you'll see that I actually had a very successful presidency. The Alabama claims, the fishing, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, offshore Canadian American fishing rights, settling the Alabama claims, uh, supporting the 15th Amendment and uh, ensuring as much as I could rights for newly enfranchised blacks. So I had I had a good administration in a very bad time to have one, but I feel I did well. And I invite anyone to scrutinize my administration, what I did and what I was not able to do. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of new writing up. Uh reviewing your presidency and your time as a general, definitely, uh, as you said, reanalyzing it or re-reviewing it, not rewriting it. Um, That's important. That's important because it's not revisionist history. It's not taking uh, a a bad presidency and trying to make it look good. Mm -hmm. It's taking a good presidency that was initially given short shrift in the press and in society for uh, external, powerful external reasons, the lost cause theory, uh, and the South trying to regain redemption of control of their of their states to pre-war conditions, uh, it's a it's a reanalysis and lifting up and sifting through what I did and uh, was able to accomplish, and seeing that Grant actually had a good presidency. He had bad press. And uh, another difficulty, Andy, is that I was never one to defend myself. Mm. I never I never replied to assaults in the press, criticism in the press, criticism by Congress. I never said anything to defend myself. I thought, well, they'll they will say what they will, what they may. I will do what I may. And my actions will speak for myself. And in in not defending myself, maybe that was a mistake because what's the saying? Silence is consent. Mm-hmm. And by not defending myself verbally or in writing, was I, did I actually contribute to a, a darkening of my reputation? Because people might have assumed that, well, that must be true. He's not saying that it isn't true. Just a thought. Well, I, I got to ask you one more question, too, uh, since we're talking about the rewriting uh, or the reanalysis, uh, excuse me, of your presidency, of your time as general. Uh, I'm assuming, uh, General Grant, you've read both Grant by Ron Sharonauer, at least are familiar with it, and American Ulysses by Ron White. Do you have one that you're more of a fan of? I like them both equally, uh, and I have... Uh, had the distinct pleasure of meeting both of those men and being acquainted with Ron Chernow and and, uh, Ron White. I like them both. I lean a little toward American Ulysses uh, because it takes, I think, a bit more uh, humanistic approach to Grant than does uh, Chernow. Uh, but I like them both equally. That, that That's not to slight Ron Chernow's grant at all. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful book, very insightful and well-written book. And so is Ron. But I, I like Ron White's softer, gentler approach to grant. While not forgiving sins, <laughs> while not whitewashing, oh, there's, there's a bad mark. Let's, let's cover that up. Uh-huh. He didn't. He didn't. He gave an insightful analysis to what I did in my life and who I was and what I was. I, I like them both equally, but I tend to lean to, toward American Ulysses more so than, than Grant. <clears throat> I'll tell you another book that I really like is Grant by Gene Edward Smith. And that's Gene, J-E-A-N. Uh, Dr. Smith died just uh, just a few years ago. But his book, Grant, by Gene Edward Smith, is an excellent read. And a book that I would also like to put before you is The Presidency of Ulysses S. Grant by Charles W. Calhoun. 
I think <clears throat> I think that uh, Dr. Calhoun has, and I was fortunate to have met him as well. Uh, I told Dr. Calhoun after having read his book on the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, that's the title. Uh, I think that uh, Charles W. Calhoun has written the third volume of Grant's memoirs, of my memoirs, because in my memoirs, I did not address the presidency. I mentioned at the end of the book that I had been elected president of the United States twice, and uh, that's all I said. But Dr. Calhoun has done a wonderful in-depth analysis of my presidency. And I dare say, I'm confident, comfortable in telling you, as I have told him, Calhoun's book, The Presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, 2018, is the third book of my memoirs. Well, we'll make sure to, to include a link when we post this for everybody so they can uh, have access to those. And we'll put up some of the maps as well um, with some of the things you mentioned so people have access. And I want to mention, um, if you would like to meet uh, General Grant, uh, you're going to be in Georgetown for the 200th coming up, correct? I am. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be uh, in Chillicothe uh, the night of April 27th, my 200th birthday at the Ross County Historical Society. And I will be uh, speaking about my desperate years, those years after I resigned from the Army from, from 1854 to 1861. And uh, that will be the topic of my talk. And I'm also going to cut my birthday cake. <laughs> there, Ross County Historical Society is bringing big birthday cake, big sheet cake, and I'm taking my saber and I'm cutting my birthday <laughs> on my birthday. And if anyone, if any one of your viewers or followers lives in the Chillicothe area, that's going to be about 630 on the evening of, when, I think, Wednesday, April 27th, but it's on April 27th. Chillicothe, Ohio, Ross County Historical Society. I will be cutting a birthday cake and speaking. Now, the next night, Thursday night, I will be uh, April, I think April 29th, I think it's, is uh, Thursday is going to be school days at the Boyhood Home. Friday night, the 29th, I'm going to be in Bethel, Ohio, at a church there and talking about my life and memories of Bethel, Ohio, where my father actually was the mayor after I left to go to West Point. They moved to Bethel after I went to West Point, and they did have the, the kindness to tell me where they'd moved. So when I came home on leave, I was able to go uh, home and find them. Saturday on April 30th, I'm going to be at the Gaslight Dinner Theater there in Georgetown. There are going to be two interviews at 10 o'clock in the morning in the Gaslight. I'm going to be interviewed. General Grant is going to be interviewed. Uh, about his military career by Vice Admiral Sean Buck, United States Navy, who is the current superintendent of the United States Naval Academy. And uh, Admiral Buck is going to come to Georgetown, and we're going to chat for a couple of hours and talk about my military career. There'll be a lunch break. And then Charles W. Calhoun, Dr. Calhoun, at two o'clock is going to join President Grant, and he's going to talk with President Grant about my administration. And I'm going to, to wax loquacious about <laughs> my presidential administration. And as I have done here with you and your uh, followers, I'm going to be talking about what I was able to do and what I was not able to do. So that's Saturday, April 30th at the Gaslight Theater in Georgetown, Ohio, 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. All who may in the area, please come. I would love to see you and pass the time of day. Even if you're not in the area, I'd recommend the trip. Uh, even just seeing the birthplace and the boyhood home alone is worth it. 
Um, and like we, we spoke about, that's kind of the point of this year is to raise some awareness, obviously to educate on uh, yourself, General Grant, but also to uh, raise awareness for your 200th birthday and a lot of those events uh, going on there. So uh, I would love to thank you for your time. I, I greatly appreciate it, General Grant. I know you're a busy man. Uh, happy birthday. <laughs> we'll, we'll be making the trip down, so we'll see you down there in uh, Georgetown for your birthday. So. I shall look forward to meeting you, Andy, and shaking your hand and passing the time of day. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversations with Ulysses S. Grant and will join us next week as we continue our conversation with Dr. Kurt Fields. Except next week, Dr. Fields will be joining us as himself to talk about how he got into the profession and what it's like to be Ulysses S. Grant for a living. Please rate and subscribe and share this podcast. And we hope to see you next week.